Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Today is Andrea Leong. Andrea is the Science Party candidate for the Wentworth by-election. She is the leader of the New South Wales State Branch of the Science Party, has a PhD in microbiology, and works as a scientist. Andrea, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Great to be here, thank you. I want to start by just introducing the Science Party to people who aren't familiar with it. It's a relatively new party in Australian politics. Yeah, yeah, it is. So we started in 2013 and at that time we were known as the Future Party and um, I wasn't a founding member but um, the party was inspired by the idea that Australia can be a technologically advanced nation with a higher quality of life um, and a higher degree of freedom for everyone who lives here. And then in the lead up to the 2016 election we changed our name for the Science Party you were originally the Future Party? Yeah, yeah, so we changed our name to the Science Party in between 2013 and uh, 2016 elections. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think that gets across a little bit better some of the ideas that we're passionate about, like doubling science funding and having a strong space industry. Strong space industry? Mm, yeah, that was a policy that we had before it got picked up by the major parties, and now we have a space agency. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. Wait, you mean like satellites or manned flights? Uh, look, we think Australia has a big role to play in some space technologies and uh-huh. perhaps launching some satellites. Um, not necessarily sending up Australian astronauts from, uh, from the Australian continent right now, but it's a huge industry that um, we should be looking into. Uh, getting into and we do now have a space agency to coordinate that activity as in australia has a space agency yeah it's just started up so it's um i think we you know the public don't necessarily know many of the details of it just yet but um yeah great to hear that that's been adopted and is starting up i have never heard of this there you go what when did this start up what's how do we know that it exists just announced maybe early in the year Maybe late last year. I can't quite remember. Okay. Well, um, your this was one of your earlier, like the science party's positions back when, uh, and on like having a space agency, and now that's been picked up by the major parties and is actually a reality. Yeah, that's reality. that's the sequence of events. So you know, I'm not saying I'm not saying we <laughs> the science party got us a space agency, but that's the order in which it happened. Certainly, there is a correlation between these events. Wait, no. That's it. Yeah, yes. we can't uh, we can't imply the causation. Fine. Um, okay, so the big the big platform that's like very uh, significant, I would say, for the science party is this the doubling of research funding. Yeah, that's something that's been on the card since the the founding of the party. Um, ooh, I wasn't a founding member, but it's definitely been a strong part of the platform since I joined up in 2015. Okay. Do you happen to know offhand uh, what what sort of figures Australia currently puts into research? Yeah. So the amount that Australia spends sort of 
directly as a, a government on research is about $10 billion. Mm-hmm. So that's looking to put another $10 billion into science funding and research. Um, and that's, you know, the question we always get asked is, how are you going to pay for that? Mm-hmm. Um, turns out science funding tends to pay for itself. So the funding that we um, give to the CSIRO and cooperative research centres, which are collaborations between academia and industry, they tend to pay returns to the economy about three times on investment. Really? Yeah, so it's it really is. It's an investment rather than, um, uh, you know, a, cost. a loss, a cost. Yeah. yeah, sure. But they are long-term, and so that's why the government is well-placed to fund ventures like these that don't pay off quick returns. Right. I, um, I know that when, like, I have this, I have this sort of... Uh, idea that whenever like someone's trying to push for an increase in funding to something it helps to have have comparison figures mm. do you do you have like uh, comparison figures on like how much we pay on other things uh, I'm not sure about that but from around the world if we were to double our science funding that would put us among some of the top science spending nations in the world like right up there with uh, South Korea and Israel they're the big spenders on research and development right so it's not um it's not outlandish to double our science funding but that would put us yeah right there um at the forefront yeah is that an absolute terms or like per capita uh that is a as a proportion of gdp okay cool um the other the other things that are big for you are uh among other things climate change and refugees correct do you want to say a couple of words on climate change uh yeah well i mean so the Science Party has a policy of um, uh, implementing an emissions trading scheme to reduce Australia's carbon emissions, but if we were to be elected as a crossbencher, I would look at all the options that were available, you know, whatever was on the table, work with other parties and parliamentarians to to just get a something, something... <laughs> Uh, something underway to seriously address carbon emissions and take climate change seriously. Um, I think that's the issue that we have at the moment in Australian politics. Um, Our government's paying lip service saying, oh, we need to address climate change, but the second half of that sentence is always that we need to um, keep energy prices affordable. (laughs) What keeps energy affordable is stability from the government so not changing from uh, we've talked about an emissions trading scheme that was 10 years ago we had a clean energy target renewable energy target then the neg so it's all of this changing and uncertainty that drives prices up what what the energy industry needs is stability and that will make the prices more affordable for the consumer and we can do that at the same time as um, reducing our use of fossil fuels we can we can have a stable energy, uh, what a, a stable a stable energy market while also changing the energy market. Mm, well, um, we can have regulatory stability, so not changing the government's uh, approach to energy policy every couple of years, and that will allow uh, companies to invest in well. In renewables. Um, so I think one of the biggest, the most telling things about energy is that the big companies like Origin are starting to move away from fossil fuel investments and get uh, involved in renewables because they're, they are affordable. 
Bizarrely, I think I uh, I found out about this from a YouTube ad where um, they have like some guy just talking to the camera about how important it is to play a part in Australian, you know, something, something. And then he uh, he mentioned this. Is that is that a market driven thing or is that like a the cult, the what the general public turning their nose up at, at fossil fuel sort of thing? Um, I think it's both. I think the Australian public is well aware that we need to move away from fossil fuels to limit the damage of climate change. But the market definitely, like I don't think these big companies care much about what we think. I think they just want to maximise their bottom line. So the fact that they're looking at renewables is very telling. Hmm. What's what's a, I, I was listening to the um, uh, Joe Rogan interview with Elon Musk and something that Elon mentioned was that even if we, um, switched the the market on cars like tomorrow mm-hmm. completely to electric. It would still take like twenty or twenty five years before all the gas cars were gone, uh, the petrol cars were gone, because they just because that's the nature of of cars. They hang around for a long time. Mm-hmm. What's what does it look like to you if if this goes right? If we actually handle this position in history correctly? Mm. Yeah, there are a lot of fronts to uh, approach at the same time. So. Um, the, the science party has tended to focus on um, electricity generation, but as you mentioned, there's also a lot of our emissions come from uh, vehicles. So there's perhaps some incentives needed there to change over to um, electric vehicles. Um, and if we do things right, I guess you know, the outcome is that we reduce our carbon emissions, which is something we've, uh, we've seen just this week, a report's come out very quietly showing that our carbon emissions keep rising steadily, even as our government says that they are, that we're on track to meet our Paris climate targets. Right. Well, um, I think that's one that's, that's growing in uh, awareness, if not, if not popularity at the moment. Um, the, other, the other one that is a bit of a hot button is the refugees issue. Mm. For people who don't know anything about what's happening with refugees in Australia, could you give us like the 30-second summary of the current state of play? Oh, well, I'll do my best. So um, Australia's taken a hard line against people who arrive or are on their way to Australia seeking asylum by boat, saying you will never be resettled in Australia. So these people are housed in offshore immigration facilities on Manus Island and Nauru. And there's very little oversight there, so we're not sure what's going on most of the time. Journalists get their visas denied. But we've heard from people who have worked there, doctors and nurses and lawyers, that um, there's very little oversight. People are suffering from medical conditions. Um, Our government's gone to court to try to stop people on... Manus Island and Nauru who need to be flown to Australia for medical treatment to, like, to our government's tried to stop that by going to court and, and intervening in those cases. Um, so it's it's beyond an immigration issue. So we can have a different discussion about immigration and numbers and how many people we should take in um, on a humanitarian basis. But right now it's uh, it's beyond an immigration issue. It's an issue of human rights abuses. How bad is it? Well, there are, um, as I said, people who need urgent, acute medical care and some of those people haven't received it. So dozens of people have died in our care from 
neglect, lack of care. And there's, um, there's a few hundred people on both Manus Island and Nauru. Um, there are lawyers working pro bono, uh, working to get the most urgent medical cases off Nauru uh, to Australia, but that goes one by one. So, um, yeah, pretty urgent, pressing issue going on there. So when you say it's a one-by-one thing, currently there has to be a specific person who needs medical care that the government is fighting and Mm. then the lawyers get involved and maybe they get that person through. Okay. And all of this is done um, offshore, meaning in in a different country, yeah, so the stories about the, the medical cases that I've heard are from lawyers working on Nauru. Um, I'm not actually sure where the, the court hearings are held, but, um, yeah, as you say, it's, it's one by one um, and they're not sure of the ability to do a, uh, something like a class action mm-hmm. to um, do that for multiple people at once. What would, it, what would you like to see happening over this whole issue? I'd like to see the offshore detention centres closed and those people brought to Australia and um, living in community detention while their claims for asylum are processed. And if they are found to be refugees, which most of them are, many of them have already been found to be refugees, we just um, don't have a process for housing them long term because we've said, you know, if you came by boat, you will not be resettled in Australia. Um, we're not even letting New Zealand take refugees. They offered to resettle. Um, well, well, New Zealand offered to take our refugees and we were like, no thanks. Yes, um, and the reasons that were given were that... Um, sorry. The reasons that were given were that um, there's if they become New Zealand citizens, then they might have easier entry to Australia later on and then become Australian citizens that way. Shocking. Isn't it unbelievable? And the Australian government can prevent anyone from entering Australia at any time, and surely they'll have records on the refugees if they were to go to New Zealand. So that is a completely bogus claim. They could... They can definitely stop people from settling from uh, New Zealand if they've come through that pathway if they wanted so it sounds like the the reason they're giving is a bit suspect what do you think the real reason is i think they just want to scapegoat a community who can't vote by the way um just to try and um unite sounds like the wrong word but i guess unite the australian people in fear against a small group that they can scapegoat to just to look tough Hmm. But um, it doesn't look tough. It looks weak. Fair. Your, your uh, own background is in science. Hmm. Um, you did a PhD in microbiology. What, I, I, we were talking about a, a bit about this uh, before off camera. Um, but could you tell us about the, the uh, work that you were doing on medical implants? Yeah, so I did my PhD at UNSW. Um, also in, con- in conjunction with the Brian Holden Vision Institute. And my project was on antibacterial surface coatings for surgical implants. So that's if you have, say, a hip or knee replacement or maybe a shorter-term implant, like um, uh, like if you have a 
catheter in your arm while you have uh, some long-term kind of uh, hospital stay. So those, the surfaces of those implants, um, occasionally they get infected and if they do, it's pretty nasty. It's difficult to treat those infections with antibiotics and oftentimes those infections will need to be, um, sorry, those implants will need to be replaced. So that's a second surgery, it's quite traumatic. So the idea um, that we were looking at in my PhD was to coat those surfaces with a um, just a film that would resist infection, uh, prevent it in the first place, because prevention is better than cure. Okay, so let's see if I, if I get this. Hey, someone has something, there are a lot of medical uh, situations where someone has to have something in their body. Yeah. It's like either a catheter sticking into the arm, like a pacemaker or something. Mm, yeah. And the problem is that those things have surfaces on which bacteria can grow? Yeah, so the bacteria might get in at the time of surgery or if you have another infection later on, the bacteria can travel through the bloodstream and arrive at the implant and then once they attach to a surface, it forms something called a biofilm, which is just a nasty mass of bacteria that's very, very resistant to any kind of treatment. What... I don't know if, if you can explain this in lay terms very easily, but what, what is it about the um, surface of, like, I, I, what is it, plastic or metal or mm. something that makes bacteria want to live there, live there well? Yeah, it's, um, it's not necessarily the material, although the material has some influence. Bacteria are actually pretty happy a lot of the time when they are living on a surface. So uh, it might not be what we think of. I don't know, maybe we think of bacteria as being something that lives freely mm -hmm. in a liquid um, but they do like to many types of bacteria do like to attach to surfaces and um, create a little protected community where they excrete some mucus sort of substance and they're protected there from the environment and they multiply happily sounds super gross it's pretty gross so what you were working on is kind of like the teflon for these things it's like you can't can't stay here uh, that's one of the approaches, is to have something that the bacteria are repelled by. The surface coating that I was looking at is uh, something that is lethal to bacteria. So some of these surface coatings work by repelling bacteria and others work by killing the bacteria. Yeah. So what I was looking at is, well, you know how we've got antibiotics? Okay. And by the way, some of them are becoming um, quite ineffective due to antibiotic resistance, which I'm also pretty concerned about. Um, but antibiotics aside, there's another class of molecules that uh, kill bacteria. These are known as antibacterial peptides or antimicrobial peptides. Um, and the main thing to know about them is that they just kill bacteria on contact. So I coated some surfaces with um, a particular antibacterial peptide, and then we tested them to see if uh, bacteria were able to adhere to them, to stick to them. So, yeah, in some cases, uh, we can try and create a surface that bacteria are just unable to stick to and slide right off. Or, yeah, in this case, um, they they do attempt, presumably, to stick to the surface, but they get killed. By the peptides? By the peptides. Okay. This is, uh, it's, this is really cool. What you were saying before, I've heard about this, the anti, um, antibacterial resistance mm. is building up. And one of that one of people's like big doomsday scenarios now is like, what if there's just a bug that's just resistant to our antibacterials, then we just all die. It's it's a pretty um, dire prospect that we're looking at if we lose all of our 
antibiotic capabilities. There's, um, it's quite a perverse situation we're in at the moment where there's some people in some parts of the world who can't get the medication they need while in other developed countries there are already people dying of infections resistant to the 10 or 20 antibiotics that, that they've tried against them. So that um, there was a report a couple of years ago about a woman in the US who went into hospital for, I think it was something routine, but she caught an infection which was resistant to the 17 types of antibiotics that they gave her and she sadly died. Jeez. They tried all 17 yep. and none of them worked? Yeah. So it's uh, it's really on the horizon. Uh, when was this? 2017. And do we know if that bug escaped that hospital? Oh, I don't know. Um, but there are there's lots of uh, different bacteria about that are resistant to, say, a class of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't want them to go swapping their genes because that's when they become resistant to all of the antibiotics. Right. These peptides that you're talking about, mm-hmm. they they are a different way of killing bacteria? Yeah. Um, so they tend to um, be less likely to induce resistance because they just physically rip into the membrane of the bacteria and all its contents leak out of the bacterial cell. So it's quite difficult for bacteria to become resistant to them. But can they be medicinized in the same way? Mm, there's some research going on and actually I've, I've been out of the field for a couple of years so I haven't kept up with the latest but there have been trials um, giving these as antibiotics Antibiotics, they tend to work topically so if you have a skin infection mm. I think they work well for that um, not sure how well they work as uh, intravenously or if you take them by mouth and some of them are quite toxic as well Great. And now the stuff you worked on in your PhD is uh, currently being trialled. Oh, not that, um, not what I've been working on particularly. It's um, still being researched in the lab, so there's ongoing research on that. But that sort of tech? Yeah, yeah, the same type of technology, the um, coatings for, um, for implant surfaces to try to make them resist infection. That's, that sort of technology is in clinical trials. Okay, cool. Um, and that was your work for your PhD, mm. and now you work. You still work. You work in science now, but mm. you're doing something slightly to the side. Yeah. So now I work in microbiome research. So that's something that um, you know we used to think with bacteria we just kill them all with antibiotics and everything will be great. Call it a victory. Go mm. home. Yeah. Yeah. Now we've found there's a lot of good bacteria that lives on our skin and um, all of our surfaces and in our gut there's lots lots of bacteria in our gut about Mm. as many bacterial cells in our gut as we have our own human cells yeah that that one i heard about that Mm. and i was like wow i have to re-examine what it means to be a person yeah right so it's are they our bacteria or are we their person the look on your face yeah <laughs> it doesn't carry but uh, but what's okay so you're working in that in mm. in how to what kill the right sorts of bacteria oh mainly how to help the right sorts of bacteria um, okay yeah so we're looking at trying to find out some of the more 
mechanistic effects of probiotics. So um, I'm not sure if you um, if you take probiotics yourself. I I certainly do if I've had food poisoning. Say. Um, I I dabble. Um, I. Uh, th- this is something that I picked up just like, you know, there are a whole lot of um, different pills that like we're just on the edge of maybe they do something <laughs> like out of fish oil and echinacea. It's like we yeah. can't tell. So just like take all of those <laughs> and hopefully, you know, some of them work. Yeah. So the research with probiotics um, at the moment suggests that it's more um, more useful for you the more you have an imbalance that needs to be corrected. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have uh, yeah severe diarrhea in hospital after um, after taking some strong antibiotics, say that's where probiotics are most likely to do the most good. Um, but uh, if you've got a well-functioning gut, then it's probably a little bit like vitamins in that they're great if you've got a deficiency. Mm. But uh, if you're well, probably. Um, won't do a whole lot. Yeah. Because you don't need it. I remember Dr. Carl Krasonetsky talking about how when he was young, he got really into um, vitamin C mega dosing. Oh, but yeah. when he was older, his uh, opinion became that all that did was produce very expensive urine. Mm. Uh, yeah, if you're not deficient in a vitamin, then you just excrete it. Oh, except for some which can be toxic if you take too many of them. Uh, vitamin A in particular. So don't, right. don't mega dose on vitamin A. No megadose in vitamin A. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, I want to I wanted to talk to you about um, scientific literacy and its effect on like public issues. I know you have a um, a bit of a soft spot for getting people vaccinated. I do, yeah. So every time I hear about uh, someone with a vaccine preventable disease, uh, whooping cough or measles, um, you know, in Sydney, um, yeah, I just I I wish that the message had got through to that person um, and usually uh, children as well, like the parents of children, about how important it is to um, keep up our vaccination rates to keep these diseases um, at bay because they they will come back unless they're eradicated from the face of the earth. Um, So that is why it's important to um, keep up the vaccinations according to the recommended schedule. But this is one of those things. I mean, this is like the big one of um, of misinformation spreads really easily via social media, and then yeah. people don't vaccinate. Yeah, it's then... it's such a shame that um, uh, that sort of sensationalist um, misinformation uh, linking vaccines to to things that they're really not linked to that is spread so much faster mm. uh, than the rebuttals. Right. It's hard to, it's hard to vaccinate against uh, anti-vaccines. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, I understand the, the concern that people have because no one wants to see their child um, sick. And so it's um, when you're deciding whether to get your child vaccinated, that's something that you're doing and then you, you'll f- you will feel responsible if something happens after the vaccination, even though the two are not related. Mm. Whereas if you, if your child has the vaccination, you don't really see the benefit because they just don't get that disease, which they didn't before anyway. Right. 
that's that's really interesting. It, it reminds me of I can't remember the name of the psychological effect, but people will um, people if someone's like angry at their friend, and then their friend gets in a car crash and dies, then the person who's angry feels like huge amount of guilt, like it's their fault, mm-hmm. like their anger somehow caused the crash. Mm. Yeah, I don't know the name of that one either. But it, it seems it seems like it's it's relevant here. Like if someone gives if someone gives their child a an, a vaccination, and then after the child gets sick, it's like what if it was something I did? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the human brain is very good at trying to find patterns. Um, you know, because that's that's a way for us to determine whether something's dangerous. You know, is that is that a tiger in the bushes? But um, that does lead us to make some um, erroneous conclusions about correlation and right. versus causation. Right. So just because two things happened nearby in time or they seem to be related, um, we actually need to have some evidence if we're going to say that those two things were related. Is there a plausible connection? I was actually walking along. This is the nerdiest thing I'm going to admit <laughs> to, I think. I was walking along the other day trying to see if I could remember the latin name for this and i think i almost have it is it it post hoc ergo propter hoc i think that is it yes (laughs) yes all right (laughs) this has been a success um i want to ask you quickly about a couple more things before we wrap this up Mm -hmm. um first the australian ran a piece about Mm. all the candidates here and um you were uh, surprised by it i was so this piece in the australian uh, mentioned all of the candidates um, that were from outside the electorate. And I have no shame in saying I live in Marrickville, um, not in the Wentworth electorate. But um, the the distance from South Head to Centennial Park is about the distance from Wentworth that I live. So I don't think that uh, from the inner west to the eastern suburbs, we're all that different. I think we... We all want a, a government that acts in our best interests and uh, uses the evidence that's on hand in formulating their policy. Do you, um, do you feel like, because we've talked a lot about uh, stuff that's more on a national level, mm. um, what, is there anything that you'd like to see locally to make Wentworth specifically better? Um, I think in this election... I am, I'm definitely focusing on those national issues because mm-hmm. it is um, yeah, a federal seat of parliament. But uh, the Science Party will be supporting some candidates in the, um, the upcoming state election in mm-hmm. March where we'll be looking at those state-level issues like uh, transport, infrastructure, schools and hospitals. And we'll also have candidates in the, uh, the next council elections. So there's some maybe surprising ways that a science party can get involved in local policy. Mm-hmm. Um, something that we've talked about is waste management. So I think that's a bit of a hot topic, like trying to uh, trying to build up a, a local um, recycling industry, but also a culture of uh, reuse, uh, reduce, recycle. Um, it's so that's. That's a local council issue and one that I think technology can be um, beneficial in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have some other ideas to do with, say, uh, local 
zones for autonomous vehicle testing. Now, that's not necessarily going to happen in every council area. Well, local zones for autonomous vehicle testing? Yeah, yeah, we would love to see more autonomous vehicles on the road, giving mobility to people who can't drive, say. Wait, do you, are we talking about self-driving cars here? We are talking about self-driving cars. Well, okay, so you're, you're talking about having a like, special, like in the way that we have bike, bike roads, you yep. have roads for self-driving cars. Yeah, as a policy trial, we would love to do that. Why? Because self-driving cars give mobility to people who might not otherwise have it. Mm-hmm. And it's a technology that is coming in whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I like it. But, uh, you know, I understand that there are um, reasons to be cautious. And that's why we'd like to run trials. Isn't this the sort of thing... Can I kind of push, push back on that a little? Mm-hmm. Isn't this the sort of thing that the, the big-time car people in America sort out and we just get secondhand and that's fine? Um, sorry, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Like, okay, so I know, I, I think right now they've started trials on, I mean, they're, they're well into trials on mm. driverless cars in general. Yeah. And they're doing most of it in the States. And I feel like there's obviously, there's there's the technological issues of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also the uh, cultural issues of, oh, I would never allow a robot to drive my car, mm. even though, you know, that's 40,000 fewer deaths a year on the roads. So, like... It seems to me like this is the sort of thing that we could just like keep our heads down about, let them battle it out in America, and then once they accept it, then it'll just be popular culture and we'll accept it too. Oh, we could do that, or we could be at the forefront of these new policy ideas. Fantastic. Do you do you have anything like? Is there is there some scientific inspired, scientifically inspired pipe dream for you? Like it would be so great if. Uh yeah. Look, this is a little bit outside the scope of what we've been talking about, but it would be so great if we could harness nuclear fusion technology. (laughs) Uh, All the the researchers always say uh, it's 10, 15, 20 years away at most, and this will give us basically unlimited energy. So uh, from what I'm hearing, Australia's domestic energy needs can be well serviced by renewables in the near future. Mm -hmm. But... The opportunities that will open up with the the close to limitless energy that we'll get from fusion power, um, as soon as it arrives, uh, we haven't even thought of the ways that we can use this energy. Right, nuclear um, fusion is is the, um, the it's it's the classic one, I guess. Um, it's got implications for space travel. Um, we'll be able to go you know, deeper into space than we have before. There'll be applications in materials and water, so. Water shortages are an issue in Australia. With um, with limited less energy, desalination is no problem. True. Um, when it comes to recycling, um, recycling is an energy intensive process. Uh, also, is um, uh, manufacturing the raw materials. Um, yeah, but all these processes will become so much more feasible. Remind me again. I I, I know that the. The great advantage of nuclear fusion, in principle, of nuclear fission is, um, if it could be honest, is is you don't get the um, same waste production. Yeah, um, minuscule um, radioactive waste in comparison. Are, are there other other advantages that we should know about? Um, it's um, you know, I'm not sure. Um, 
I actually don't know whether the yield of uh, this is I'm going to be pulled up on this I'm sure mm. I don't know the the yield of fusion energy compared to fission energy um, I guess compared to what we have at the moment the yield is just so great in my mind that it's uh, it's just beyond what I'm I'm thinking of it's yeah right limitless okay. <laughs> cool um, and Finally, if you have a, a message for people who are going to the polls in Wenwa, mm-hmm. uh, something you want them to know ahead of the election. Yeah, well, um, basically I'm running in this election for the Science Party because I'm a scientist and um, I would, I'd like to be in the lab, but I want to give the voters an option that is long-term thinking based in evidence um, and is looking for climate action and um, action on refugees to close the camps and bring them here and also to um, position Australia as a technologically advanced country that um, is strong in research and technology. Andrea, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Kenny. This is General Ike building Jerusalem.